Hey there, listeners. Before we get started, I wanted to give you a heads up that we launched a new video series here at 538 called The United Stats of America. Get it? Anyway, if you want to check out this new series, search for 538 on YouTube and you'll see the latest video called Do Americans Like Talking Politics at the Thanksgiving Table? Essentially, we went out into the world and asked people to guess what other Americans think about all things fall and Thanksgiving related, and we made a video for you. It's fun. I had fun doing it, and uh, lots of people here at 538 contributed, so go check it out. You can search for 538 on YouTube, or you can find it on my Twitter account. So go check it out. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. Last week, the Consumer Price Index showed prices in October rising 6.2% from a year earlier, the fastest rise in 30 years. Americans are taking note, and it's created a political conundrum for the Biden administration. On one hand, Americans have trillions in excess savings from the pandemic and federal stimulus packages, and a record high 74% see it's a good time to find a job, according to Gallup. But views of the overall economy are pessimistic. In a recent ABC News Washington Post poll, 70% of Americans rated the economy negatively, and many view President Biden as responsible. About half of respondents blame Biden for rising prices, and his approval on the economy was 16 points underwater. Today, we're going to talk to economist Kenneth Rogoff about why we're experiencing this period of inflation and how Americans are thinking about it. We've also got a good or bad use of polling of sorts. We're speaking with the director of a well-known poll who suggested that maybe pollsters should stop conducting election polling altogether. So the rest of the politics team here at 538 is at a retreat today, which means you're stuck with just me. But as a heads up, Nate is finally officially back from Las Vegas. We're going to dig into the mailbag later this week and answer your questions about all things elections and politics. And I'm sure that Nate will be happy to tell you which Vegas hotel has the best buffet if you ask. So send all of your burning questions over to podcasts at 538.com or flag me down on Twitter at Galen Druk. But let's begin with our good or bad use of polling example. Following the elections in New Jersey and Virginia, director of the New Jersey-based Monmouth University poll, Patrick Murray, wrote an article for NJ.com titled, I blew it, maybe it's time to get rid of election polls. Essentially, he said that the A-rated Monmouth poll was significantly off in the New Jersey governor's race and had been off in other recent elections. As a result, he suggested that maybe pollsters should stop doing election polling altogether and just stick to issue polling. So today's good or bad use of polling is essentially the argument to not poll. And here with me to discuss is Patrick Murray, the author of the article and director of the Monmouth Poll. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. It's good to be with you, Galen. So first off, can you just explain your thinking behind wanting to get rid of election polling? As you can probably imagine, that's that's a little triggering <laughs> for us here at 538, but give me your reasoning. Yeah, particularly since the, the piece of the election polling that I'm talking about specifically is that horse race question that you use so much. Uh, you know, this is not something that just dawned on me when when we woke up on Wednesday morning, or, or in my case, not waking up too much, but having stayed up all night, uh, Tuesday night, watching these New Jersey results come in, is, you know, what's the contribution that we're actually making? Uh, and can we make a, that contribution in a way that continues uh, to, you know, pay, put polling in a positive light? Because of all the other things that we do with with survey research that are not related to 
telling you what the horse race looks like. Uh, and that's other things that we do around election polling, issue polling, uh, you know, where the candidates stand uh, in terms of their favorabilities. But the more important things that we do, which is understanding things like, you know, what are the attitudes and behaviors during a pandemic? Uh, and which actually impact public health and all the other things that you don't get reported in the in the media that go to understanding how uh, you know social services are delivered, uh, you know the kind of work that that uh, survey researchers do with government agencies with nonprofits. Okay, so all that thing. So I'm you know I'm talking about a big philosophical picture mm -hmm. here, but election polling has always been the one place where at least you can you know you can put down a, a public benchmark to say look polling is is pretty good. Um, yes, there are some misses, and our job over the past few years, or our job forever, basically, you know, going back to Dewey defeats Truman, is explaining where those misses come from, learning from them, moving on, but also trying to make the public understand that there is a range of uncertainty there. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where, with the horse race question itself, is that there is more and more uncertainty about how valuable it is. Now, we had two races this year uh, that people were paying attention to, the Virginia governor's race and the New Jersey governor's race, and the Virginia polling was was pretty good, including my own poll. So why did the, the New Jersey race set me off? Is I, I think it was kind of the final straw. And my thinking about this really just pivoted over the past year. I mean, I you know, I've been worried about this. 2016, we had our misses. We learned from them. 2018 was good. Uh, you know, the, the special elections up to that point were good. And then, then we hit 2020 again. And delving into my 2020 polling and looking at validated voter turnout in our samples, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that there are some times when our samples are just going to be off. And I'm worried in a place like New Jersey, where we have an incredibly good track record at Monmouth, um, because it's our home state and we've been polling there forever, and our polls have been almost dead on for almost every election that we've polled there, is suddenly how are we off like everybody else in, in the public arena, as well as all the Democratic polls, by so much? What did we miss that was going on in New Jersey that we just couldn't capture, unless you were going to make an assumption? So that, I think what happened was... I, I'm looking at that at, in the light of a pollster who, you know, every time we have a miss, we, we look back and say what we can do. But I think I'm also looking at it in light of what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, too, and saying, if we are doing things that just allow people to dig into their want for misinformation and for to paint anything that tries to be data-based as evil and wrong and fake then are we doing a service to ourselves by putting out information that we know has less reliability than some of the other information we put out? All right, so there's a lot there to unpack. First and foremost, when you say, should we put out information that has more uncertainty than other information that we put out, what do you mean? Are you saying that you believe there's more uncertainty surrounding horse race polling than there is around issue polling? And if so, why do you say that? Yeah, I, I do that. Uh, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. And the, the reason is that we have a, a number of other benchmarks that, that we can use. If you if you look at some some polling that you know that doesn't see the public light of day, but um, is used to track things like you know agricultural production and so forth. You know what what farmers are going to plant next year and stuff. That that stuff actually you can benchmark to uh, or or verify with what actually happens. And that polling is pretty good. Our polling on the COVID vaccination rates as they went up through this past year, were very good. So we did have external benchmarks in which we could look at and say, hey, polling is doing a good job. Uh, in the horse race, 
because we're doing something that polling really isn't designed to do, which is to step backwards, what, the, what is polling designed to do? It's designed to take a snapshot of what the public looks like today. But the first rule of that is that you have to know who the public is. So when we do a horse race poll, we're trying to figure out who the public is going to be. We're trying to predict what the public is going to look like, that public being the people who actually vote. So you come up with voter models. Our voter models in the past have been fairly good, except for you know some misses here and there. We're getting those misses more frequently. And that's, I think, where the problem lies is uh, that that because of our deep partisan divisions that, you know, take the, take the race of New Jersey. For example, if 75,000 more Democrats showed up in Democratic areas and 75,000 fewer Republicans showed up in those places we saw a Republican surge, the polls would have been pretty good. Um, but my concern is that the horse race question itself starts to, could change the narrative. So if I looked at my New Jersey polling and I did not ask the horse race question, but asked every other question that we asked, which was the issue questions, the candidate questions, uh, the relative strengths of the candidates on those issues, that we probably would have told a different narrative if we didn't know what the horse race number was from those polls. And then our narrative would have been, and there's an incumbent who has a 51, 52% job approval rating. Uh, the issue picture is switching, uh, shifting from issues that are favorable to him to, to issues that are favorable to the Republicans. Without knowing the horse race, we probably would have wrote a, a, a story out of that, or the media would have wrote, written a story out of that that said, oh, well, you know, the, the incumbent has above 50% on their job approval rating, that's, so that's generally pretty good, but this is a very democratic state and things are shifting in the Republicans' favor, which would have been the correct story to tell if we weren't looking at the horse race numbers. When it comes to only focusing on issue polling, there are a couple challenges there. One, sometimes with issue polling, you have an external benchmark that you can peg it to to see whether or not it's accurate. But oftentimes you don't. And in the cases where you don't, you know, you're saying that the likely voter model may be one of the things that's causing issues with horse race polling, which isn't an issue for issue polling. But really, I think in recent elections, more people have pointed to the difficulty of reaching a representative sample of Americans than it actually being an issue of likely voter models. The fact that pollsters simply are not reaching a certain segment of the Republican electorate that is less inclined to respond to pollsters. And it's not just that they're less inclined to talk to pollsters when they're asking them who they're going to vote for in the election. It's a whole host of things. You said that we had some external benchmarks for harvests or things like vaccinations. But when you compared, you know, issue polling on how people viewed COVID precautions and things like that over the past year and a half, we saw that expressed preferences in polling were actually pretty different from the revealed preferences that we saw in the actual data about, you know, how people were going about their lives in reality. So I guess I'm curious when you try to silo the two and say there's horse race polling and there's all these things that apply to horse race polling that don't apply to issue polling, I don't really see the evidence backing that up. And, and if it doesn't, then are you suggesting we should get rid of all of polling? It depends on which questions you're looking at. If you're looking at attitude questions about future behavior, about social desirability, um, you're going to get more, particularly in, in an issue like the pandemic where there's such a huge divide in the public, you have to be careful about the question wording there. And I think that's problematic. Um, and that's something that, yes, that you're pointing out that that happens. I was surprised by how good our polling has been on the vaccination question, which is the one benchmark that we can use that the people have actually done. Like so when you're measuring a behavior that really is something that you can pinpoint, particularly if you ask some follow-up questions to 
you know, assure that the, that the person is, has, is actually reporting that accurately. I think we do a good job. And I think this is the, the, the problem that we face with this, the horse race polling is that we're willing to accept a little bit more um, uncertainty and random error when we issue poll than when we horse race poll. I think that's part of the problem. It's not just the poll itself, because I, you're right, there is a, there is a sampling issue, um, uh, but that sampling issue is not as significant in impacting the results or how we interpret the results for issue polling of a general population than it is for horse race polling when on top of the sampling, we have to actually do these, these likely voter models. So it's a combination of the two. And the thing is, we, we have not done a very good job of um, conveying the uncertainty, Explaining uncertainty that exists in polling. So isn't yeah. that the question, really? What can we do to convey uncertainty? Because, I mean, I was particularly surprised that you wrote this op-ed coming off of an election where the polling average in Virginia was basically spot on. Yeah. In New Jersey, there wasn't a lot of polling, but highly rated Emerson College was a point off from the actual result. So it doesn't seem like there's some kind of systematic problem with polling. There's always error. There are always outliers when it comes to the polling landscape. That's why you average all the polls and understand that it comes with a degree of uncertainty. And honestly, in governor's polling over the past 20 years or so, 30% of all governor's races had final polling average misses that were at least five points. And the 95% confidence interval on those polling averages in governor's races is plus or minus 12 points. So we have like a long history of there's uncertainty in governor's polling. In fact, of all the governor's races that we've polled over the past 30 years, this year's election was actually really good. Here's where I sit, which I think is different from where you sit. And it's why I got into this business to begin with. Um, let's start out with the uncertainty and conveying the uncertainty. I actually think what you guys do, what by default, not by design, actually conveys less uncertainty, <laughs> conveys more yeah. certainty. Using an average conveys more certainty than a range, which is, you notice what I've been doing in my polling over the past years, few years uh, since the 2018 cycle, is I've been trying to present a range of likely voter models. Uh, to try to convey uncertainty. I don't think I've been very successful at that, trying to get the media to look at that as, as, you know, there's not just one number there, there's a range of numbers. And I think doing an average as aggregators do kind of, kind, kind of conveys, there is a way to create more certainty out of this uncertainty. But that's not really my concern because you can come back at me with, with exactly what you came back at me with, which just said, overall, they're right most of the time. The problem is we live in a different environment. If this was five years ago, I would have never written that. We live in a different environment, and that's why I got into polling, because I really was more interested in our political culture and our political behavior and reflecting that properly, making a contribution to that. We live in a world where facts are under attack. And I am not looking just at how polling is doing isolated from the world around me. I am looking at the contribution that it makes to kind of countering this problem that we've been facing that has ramped up over the past five years. And my concern is much more philosophical than it is about the statistical backing of polling. So I can talk to fellow pollsters who will say many of the things that you have said and have said to me, but the people that I am really concerned about are those who are in the middle. Of, of the population, 
who grumble about what's going on in the world, the people that I actually talk to <laughs> in doing polling, who are losing faith in public institutions and public processes. And my question is, are we contributing to this every time we put out a horse race poll, even though they're not wrong, they're right most of the time, but when they're wrong, are we, is it amplifying this problem? That's the philosophical point, uh, position that I'm coming from. Why do you think the answer to mistrust in institutions is to give people less information? No, to keep, give people different information. If, as I said, we had a lot, here's the other problem that we face. When I go out to do polls uh, in different geographies, I want to know what the issues are in, in those races. So I usually do, either I'll do some qualitative work, uh, to speaking individually or in groups to, to voters, or we'll do some open-ended questions in the beginning uh, to ask about what issues are important. When I actually go then to search and see what's, hap what's developing during a campaign, and we do Google searches, LexisNexis searches, the vast majority, and by vast majority, I mean somewhere in the 90% category of stories, media stories about an election are, are about either where the person is, in the, where the candidates are in the horse race or where the candidates are in the cash race. So there's a media problem here. The media, I, I ask all these questions. I ask one horse race question and then anywhere from 12 to 20 different issue questions or other questions about the election. In most of the reports about our polls, those issue questions are glossed over, or in most cases, not reported at all. It's only the horse race that's polled. So I'm not saying that we're going to give you less information. I'm going to say we're going to give you the information that you should actually be focusing on rather than the horse race question, which, you know, is, I know, I understand where it's useful as an anchor for people, but, you know, and, and I'm only one person in this, but maybe you should be focusing, the, and by you, I mean the media, should be focusing more on all those other questions that we ask that explain what's going on. And maybe you should also do some more issue uh, reporting on these elections rather than just falling back on the easy reporting about horse race numbers and who's raising more money. And of course, we absolutely do cover issue polling here at 538. I mean, we tracked issue polling all across the pandemic, specifically on how people felt about coronavirus. Yeah, but I'm talking about within the context of an election, within the context of yeah, election itself. Absolutely. If you do a if you do a content analysis of all the media reporting out there, you'll see what I'm talking oh, about. 100%. And so I think part of what we do here at 538 is saying people are going to cover the horse race. Even if every institutional pollster in America stopped polling, there would still be partisan pollsters and campaign pollsters who would get polls, give it to the media, and the media would report it. If institutional pollsters stopped polling, it wouldn't be a world without horse race polling. It would just be a world in which all horse race polling had an agenda. And so what we at 538 try to do is say, people are going to cover the horse race. If they didn't cover polling accurately and view it with an understanding of uncertainty and things like that, it would be based off of, you know, narratives, going and talking to two or three people in Pennsylvania on a main street and coming back and saying, these are the issues that matter in this race. And therefore, this person is probably up and this person is down. Covering polling accurately tries to at least anchor campaign coverage in some sort of representative survey of the American public, as opposed to narratives that are either given by partisan pollsters, campaign pollsters, or based off of an unrepresentative sample of asking people on a main street what they think about a particular issue. Like when I think about a world without institutional pollsters, that's kind of the world that I see. From your perspective, when you see a world without 
institutional pollsters doing horse race polling, do you think that all horse race coverage just goes away? No, absolutely. But I can't be responsible. Like you're putting on my shoulders that I have to go out there because of my reputation and track record. I have to keep horse race polling in order to, you know, fend off the hordes that are doing crap polling or are doing polling with a with a, with an agenda, as you said. But it's just the reality of what would happen if institutional pollsters stopped right. doing horse race. Polling. I know, I, I and I agree with you. But again, you're putting on my shoulders the this, this sense that like that that's my responsibility to do that, and I'm saying my responsibility, as I see it, as as quite frankly, and I, I know this sounds. Uh, you know, soppy in, in some sense. But but as an American, my, my responsibility is, where is this country going right now? And what is my contribution to that? And that's why I'm starting to question about me personally about doing horse race polling um, and whether that contributes to the distrust that we see in institutions and democracy. Now, will that, if I get out of the horse race um, business, and, and ask all those other questions. See, I'm not saying giving up election polling. I'm saying asking all the other questions that really do tell the story and put it on the media's uh, shoulders to say, report this better. I, you know, I can't be responsible. I can't be responsible if they don't do that. That's, that's what my concern is. So as I said, my concern is, is a lot more philosophical. I mean, just, you know, the times have changed. And I think a lot of us have our heads in the sand about what's going on right now. Uh, in the country. And I guess as a pollster, as a survey researcher, as somebody who is deeply concerned with political behavior and, and our political culture, I have to think about where I can best make that contribution. So I put a, so I put a stake in the ground around horse race polling and the value of it. I want to continue this conversation in just a minute. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. I'm curious, I want to hear what the direct line from horse race polling to distrust in institutions is and how only having the issue polling would make the difference. Yeah. So what let's take uh, let's just take this recent New, New Jersey example. Every story about the New Jersey race or I'm, I'm being facetious here. So, you know, the vast majority of stories about the New Jersey race were about, or were couched in the framework that Phil Murphy was significantly ahead and that it was his to lose. And we contributed to that. And that was not the right story to tell. So when that turned out not to be the case, then 
it fed into, and you, you, you see these reactions, you hear th these reactions, not just on social media, but if you kind of walk the streets. And, and of course, being in New Jersey, I was immersed in that media market. So that's, that's part mm -hmm. of it. So I was seeing exactly what was going on. So I was more than well aware of, of what I was doing there uh, and m what my con contribution to that was, is that on the street, the thing is, I can't trust anything. See what happened with this election? You can't trust these people. You can't trust the pollsters. You can't trust the media. And, and that contributes to can't, you, you can't trust the institutions. I, a lot of work that I've been doing over the past few years has been around understanding our, the way we view ourselves politically. And I've been working with a social uh, psychologist on a better understanding authoritarian tendencies. And we've turned up some incredible and, and disturbing results about what's going on in the United States. Um, we did some significant work uh, that was part of a book that was written by uh, John Dean, uh, the former, uh, you know, the Watergate um, figure, and has been picked up by some other folks like Morning Consult did, took what we did and did it internationally and found not only the, pretty much the same thing that we found in the United States, but found that it was significantly more of a problem here in terms of people having authoritarian tendencies and what that actually means for trust in government in a, in a democratic republic um, than places, than other countries. So this is where I sit right now. Yeah. So I'm talking to you because, you know, you, you know me for the horse race polling, but, you know, that is not why I got into this. And Absolutely. I got into this because of a whole host of other reasons that are really pushing me in a different direction right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for example, the other segment on the show today is all about perceptions of the economy that don't really have to do with horse race polling at all. I absolutely appreciate the work that pollsters do in issue polling and all kinds of different surveys. Of course, the census doesn't ask anybody about who they're going to vote for, but it's maybe the most used data source here at 538. You're asking us to kind of live in the real world and think about broader society and the way that information interacts with beliefs and our current political situation. So I'm wondering, you know, like in a world where you didn't have any of the polling out there saying that Murphy was leading by 11 points or what have you, people would still look at the margin by which Biden won, the margin by which Murphy won, general understanding of, of New Jersey. And like I said, the partisan pollsters, the campaign pollsters, and they would still have a view that it was Murphy's to lose. It's hard for me to imagine institutional pollsters stepping back and that world being very different. And, and not even just because of the media, but just because of understandings of what New Jersey is as a state, what New York is as a state. We have right. these understandings already. My feeling is, though, that they would say that with less certainty. Without the horse race question to anchor that to, that it would that would be couched a little differently. I think that, and that's the key. That's what I'm talking about is our contribution to the narrative. How do we contribute to the narrative? So if, if horse race polling means they're gonna be looking at other things, but they're also gonna be looking at other things with less certainty. And that's great. That's what we wanna do. I, as I said, you know, I tried to do that with the way we presented multiple models yeah. in our polling. Uh, that made problems for the media, that made problems for you guys, because you know, you didn't know how to to put our data into into your 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 aggregation uh, <laughs> your calculations, uh, and I think that's the key. Is yeah, I understand uncertainty is hard to talk about, but. 
that's what you have to do. What we try to do here at 538 is imbue those horse race numbers with uncertainty. And we talk about it. I mean, anyone who's listening to the podcast knows how much we talk about uncertainty. So I am curious going forward, for example, the Emerson College poll, it looks like one point off, you know, the end result in New Jersey, other pollsters did. Right. It was like, and that was uh, what, two or three, three weeks before the election? Yeah. And again, the polls in Virginia were spot on. The polls in Georgia during the Senate runoffs were really good. Right. Do you think that even if horse race polling is accurate, and again, accurate is a complicated concept within polling because we know that there's uncertainty and it should just basically 95% of the time fall within a certain range. And those are the expectations we have for polling not to give us a precise number. But is this a reaction just to your poll being significantly off of the end result? Or do you think basically even pollsters that are getting quite close, that are getting pretty accurate results, should also stop horse race polling? Yeah, I think, well, look, I, I'm getting pretty accurate results if I only looked at Virginia versus New Jersey, right? Yeah. So you're... So, so your question is a good one. What, what's what's the, the motivation for this? It's, it's that I do believe that election polling, including horse race polling, is, is going to be accurate more times than not. Although I think we, we've hit an environment recently where the number of misses has increased. And my concern is where is the critical mass of misses? Because it's not a majority. You don't have to miss a majority of the time. To hit that critical mass where people stop trusting polling. And that's where my concern is. Are we getting to that critical mass? And how do we decide to contribute to it? So I, I you know, I, as I said, put, put that, that stake in the ground there about let's take a closer look at what the contribution of horse race polling really is. And not just to aggregators, not just to people who, you know, are in um, kind of political bubbles who follow this stuff all the time, but there are the vast majority of the public doesn't really follow this. They only kind of hear parts of this. And that's the, that's the part that I'm, I'm worried about is that even with polling being, as I believe, continues to be very good and our best measure of where we are and does a good job of that, including during elections, if we still hit that critical mass where people use different examples to distrust what we're doing and that feeds into and builds off of distrust in institutions and democratic processes. That's where we're problematic. And I know that kind of sounds pie in the sky, um, but that is where I am. And I think we have to kind of think about that. Isn't part of that the accountability process, right? Because in some ways with issue polling, no one's ever going to really be able to test you in a really public way. Elections are where we test the accuracy of polling in a really public way. And that's kind of just what accountability looks like. If you only ever do issue polling, and yes, you can look at revealed preferences in some circumstances, most people are never going to pay attention to the kind of analysis that we do at 538, comparing revealed preferences with expressed preferences and so on. What it really means is that pollsters are just going to be able to evade accountability. Yeah. Wow, you, you guys are really are, are really worried about losing horse race polls, aren't you? Um, well, I mean, you put the idea out there. I have to ask you tough yeah. questions. Yeah, no, and, and you're right. I mean, that is a question that we have to think about. And so- it, as I said, I, you have to weigh it on both sides. Okay, so we're losing certain uh, type of accountability because uh, horse race polling is one of the few places where we regularly get a check on polling accuracy. But we're also in an environment that is where 
the public is significantly less likely, and they've always been unlikely in many cases, to accept misses, but they've become significantly more skeptical of anything that's fact-based. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at like cognitive processing theory, is that there, there hits a certain point where they just decide they're going to distrust everything. And my concern is that we're, we're reaching that point. Do you think there are other things that we could do to improve the public's understanding of polling, of sampling a representative population, other than doing away with horse race polling? Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think there's something that, that I, in fact, you guys can do, which is instead of uh, producing a midpoint average, you know, take all those, take that input from all those uncertain polls and produce a range. What's which the, what's of the course upper and lower? Is what we do just, when we have a forecast model, but but re yeah, but report the upper and lower level bounds, but don't report the midpoint of those bounds. You know where you where you think it sits within those bounds. I think that's something that can be done. Um, you know, and again, with New Jersey, it still would have been off, but uh, in in the reporting, but uh, and you guys didn't do an, a model for for New Jersey, so I'm, I'm not I'm not saying this to you, but I think you know you're and you're not you're not the only ones who do this this aggregation, but I think showing the the outer the bounds rather than reporting a single number in the middle would go a long way towards uh, improving how we convey what's going on in an election. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything else that pollsters can do? Um, yeah, like, like for example, can we ask the horse race question and not report the margin? Um, is there a way to report, you know, ask the question but report it in such a way that you don't know exactly what the margin is, um, and that you know there's a range of possibilities for one candidate versus a range of possibilities for another candidate? You know, I'm open to doing that. Um, I'm, I'm open to looking at other ways that we can produce those results in a way that is is not only accurate for polling purposes, but also is a way that increases public confidence that what we're reporting is, is in the realm of, of reality and not dismissing it out of hand. So I guess the real question here is, are you going to stop doing horse race polling? It sounds like you suggested you might, but are you going to stop doing horse race polling at Monmouth? I am fairly certain that I'm going to stop reporting the horse race number the same way that we've been reporting it in terms of candidate X versus candidate Y and the margin between them. I have not figured out a better way to, to do that yet. And so, you know, for your listeners who are, are well-educated in this, I welcome all suggestions. Uh, in the way to do that. But I want, I want a way to do that that kind of pushes the media to think about, okay, if we don't have a horse race number from this poll, what do we have from this poll that can help us explain the election? Um, and maybe report on some of that other stuff that just gets buried or ignored uh, from our polling. So if you're going to give me some kind of interval, how sure are you that you're going to stop doing horse race polling? <laughs> I am I, I am I'm definitely above 50% on that. Um, so, uh, uh, because I just, I just don't think it's, it serves what my mission is, what the mission of, of the Monmouth University Polling Institute is, uh, to continue to do it in the same way that we're doing it. So it's not going to, you're not going to see that same question from us in that same, reported in that same way. 
All right, so for today's good use or bad use of polling example, I don't have my colleagues with me, so I'll leave it to the listeners to decide whether or not this is a good use or bad use of polling. But thank you so much for joining me today, Patrick. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about this. I understand how tough it is for, you know, that, that this can raise the, the hairs on the back of your neck when, when I put that out there. Um, but I wanted to get that conversation going because it's, I think it's an important conversation to put polling in the context, not just of people who report on elections, but really where we are as a country right now. I, we have to come back and think about that because it's, we're just in such a volatile time. And I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do that. Patrick Murray is the director of the Monmouth University Polling Institute. Let's move on and talk about inflation and how it shapes Americans' perceptions of the economy. As I mentioned at the top, inflation has reached a 30-year high and appears to be behind Americans' economic pessimism despite other aspects of the economy that might be cause for optimism. Concerns about inflation can have significant political weight. They've historically shaped election outcomes and appear to be creating potential obstacles to Democrats passing their climate and social spending plan. So what's behind our current period of inflation and where will things go from here? Here with me to discuss is Kenneth Rogoff. He's a professor of economics at Harvard University and served as chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. How do economists explain the current sustained rise in consumer prices and how much disagreement is there? Well, I think there's agreement that it has a lot to do with the pandemic, that when you shut down an electric power plant and you want to restart it, you can't do it all evenly and there are supply chain issues and such. So certainly the pandemic crashed everything and now everybody's rushing out to buy stuff around the whole world. And it has a lot to do with that. Beyond that, the big question is, will it last? And I, I think an honest assessment is we have no idea. Fantastic. We love honesty here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, and I got, go a little further into that. We don't really know why inflation's been as low as it has been the whole 21st century. It's been like, yeah, there was independent central banking. We have globalization and different explanations. But central banks have been frustrated in creating inflation. Like until now, if you did, you were back in 2019, if you told the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve, hey, we can get inflation up to 2%, we can tell you how to do that. They'd go, wow, wow, we want to hear it because we've been frustrated because inflation's actually less than we'd like. And of course, then he said, well, you'd have to have a global pandemic. They might not have been so thrilled. But there's a lot of uncertainty about inflation, even before the pandemic. When it comes to the causes of this period of inflation, I think everyone agrees the pandemic has plenty to do with it. How much of it has to do with government spending? And to the extent that we can, can we look at other countries and compare their levels of government expenditure and say, okay, they're experiencing more or less inflation based on how much the government spent during the pandemic? Or is it not as clear cut as that? Well, it's definitely not as clear cut as that. Although I will say, if you look at Europe and Japan, those are the other two major regions, they're not experiencing the kind of inflation we are. In fact, Japan has nothing compared to us. Europe's sort of getting upset because they're at 2% or a little over 2%, which makes the, the Germans are very inflation averse. But I, I think that's a notable point that they're not. 
Now, we have probably done more stimulus than anyone else, so you could point to that. But on the other hand, we have probably been ahead of everyone else in our recovery, so maybe they're going to experience more later. There's sort of a separate question of the optics of throwing a lot of spending into a situation where the economy, by some measures, is overheating. And did it really cause the inflation? It, it certainly was some of it. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, you know, is that in the entirety of why our inflation is so much higher than their experience in Europe and Japan? I think we don't know that. Of course, the point of the government's stimulus spending is trying to get the economy back to normal, back to full employment, have people with money to spend and jobs to go out and, and find. How close are we to being back to normal in other parts of the economy? Well, the biggest puzzle really is that a lot of people have chosen not to re-enter the labor force still. Something like 5 million people, you know, less than we had at the beginning of the pandemic. Some of those are people my age, I'm older, who just said, you know, uh, I don't think I want to go back to work after I think about it more. There's a, a fair amount of that. There are also people who had to deal with childcare. They're afraid of getting ill. There's also a lot of people who just are thinking, you know, the pandemic's made me rethink my life. I want to take a step back. I have enough from the government right now. I can take a little longer. Nobody has the answer to this. It's one of the biggest puzzles. And it's one of the reasons inflation's going up is labor supply is tight. But oddly, Wages have not yet outpaced inflation. It's really remarkable. I am expecting to see that, that so far the wages are going up, but they're not going up faster than the inflation. That's not good. But I'm expecting as this unfolds, wages to start rising faster than inflation. And then at what point have we just recalibrated to where lower income Americans are getting paid more, service jobs are getting paid more, and we're in the place we want to be. And to what extent have we started a runaway train that turns out to be harder than we thought? Nobody knows. And that, that's, a, that's a real challenge, particularly facing the Federal Reserve, where they really don't want to crush the expansion. And it's more important to have everybody employed than to have 4% inflation instead of 2%. I mean, there's trade-offs here, but We've gone through a long, long period, not just now, but over 10 or 12 years where it's been very difficult. So I, I think the central banks are right to put employment first. But if you let everything get out of hand, then at some point it starts hurting everyone. Then inflation's high, it's unstable, it's out of control. Then they have to rein it in, and, and that could be very painful. So there's a lot of finger pointing. But you're asked if economists agree on all this. I, I think certainly fiscal policy, the stuff they're actually doing going forward, infrastructure, social infrastructure, that's actually not going to be that inflationary because it dribbles out over a long period. It improves productivity. It's actually the early stuff that we did at the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021. So the American Rescue Plan, for example. Yeah, the American Rescue Plan and the, the, the last thing under Trump that they passed, whatever the name of that was, I lose track. The 900 billion. Yeah, that was probably a little too much too late. 
and maybe it would have been better to do more with infrastructure. But who knew? I mean, it's this is in the middle of a raging recession, epidemic, fiscal policy, unlike monetary policies, not fine brain surgery. It's very hard to time it right. I want to talk a little bit more about the future in a bit. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. How does inflation shape Americans' overall views of the economy? Because looking at the polling, it seems like increasing prices is trumping other good news in the economy when it comes to Americans' opinions? So let me go back to the 70s. This isn't the 70s, but I'm, you know, was there in the 70s. I suspect you might not have been. That is correct. That is correct. They, they blamed inflation for everything. So if their wage went way up because there was inflation, that's because I'm doing a good job. But if prices went up, they would explain why their dog got sick everything wrong in their life. It, the average person, you know, isn't looking at hundreds of thousands of data points and sorting things through. And I think the inflation is something that is uneasy. You want your things to be normal and you go out to the store, you go to try to buy something online or to a restaurant and the prices just shock you. So it's definitely something that bothers people in polling a lot. But it's not clear if it's really the inflation that's bothering them or something else if you fixed it. I mean, certainly the, the fact the pandemic isn't feeling as over as we'd like it to feel bothers people. And you may say, well, they're not going to blame inflation for that, but they sort of tend to conflate all these things. So I wouldn't overread into the short term. You know, we'll see how they're feeling in a year about it. But no, inflation's not good. But on the other hand, if your choice is a recession, I bet that's worse. Why is inflation a bigger driver of economic sentiment than, say, employment? Well, I, I'm not sure that it is. Or I guess that in the current economy, it seems like even though there are lots of job opportunities, Americans have a pretty pessimistic view about the economy. In the most recent ABC News Washington Post poll, 70% of Americans rated the economy negatively, for example, even in an environment where savings is way up and there are lots of job openings. So I'm not sure I can give a definitive answer on that, but certainly whatever's bothering people at the moment, it's clearly inflation. And I, I think the economy, it, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't feel normal. I'm teaching and we're all wearing masks. And yes, you know, the students are in class and I'm lecturing, but we're not happy about it. So if you're asking if you call that the economy and we're back to normal, it depends on what state you are in and what city you're in. But I mean, I think people are feeling uneasy about the economy. What's next? We just went through something really traumatic 
And to think people are just going to snap back and it's all clear. I think this is going to scar us for a very long time. So it's hard to sort out what's really bothering people. But the inflation something very clear. Everybody can see it. We haven't even talked about rents and housing prices if someone's trying to buy a house. What are people's expectations today about future inflation and how much of an impact does that have on how long inflation lasts? We do know something a lot of studies show is people adjust their inflation expectations very slowly. So if they're used to a long period of really low inflation, they see high inflation for a while, they don't immediately think, uh, the sky is falling in, inflation's going to be high forever. There's lots of studies showing, we, we economists describe that as adaptive expectations. People adapt, but slowly. If we look at uh, various measures, uh, surveys, financial market measures, they've gone up, but frankly, just to a bit above where they were a few years ago, they're not something that changed dramatically. The Problem is, if inflation grinds on for another couple of years, which it well could because of supply shortages, worker shortages, the rest of the world's going to start catching up to us uh, in their growth and they're going to start demanding more stuff. If it lasts, then people go, whoa, you know, maybe inflation is going to last longer than we were thinking. And then it's not that easy to squeeze out for the same reasons. But so far, if you look at all the different measures, the effect is notable, but not really dramatic. Is inflation over 2% ever a good thing? And if so, when? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Inflation averaging 2% is what the Fed aims to do. And I want to say, why 2% instead of 0%? It's because we think that the measured inflation overstates what it really is. There's all kinds of innovation going on in the economy, new products that we don't you know, really measure well what they're doing. And so the comparisons of what does it cost to do what you did last year, which is kind of what inflation is asking, is hard to do when there are things you can do this year that you couldn't do last year. Looking at over a long horizon, things like, well, we're doing this conversation now in a way that you just couldn't imagine before. So 2%'s been what they've been aiming at, which is supposed to look like 0% or close to it. But there's nothing wrong with having inflation be a little higher than that. In fact, the Fed says it wants to average 2%. It's not looking to always be 2%. And one of the problems that all the central banks have gotten backed into is people seem to have gotten the idea reflected in your question that if I get to above 2%, I'm just going to raise interest rates really sharply and do whatever it takes to pull back, whereas uh, if inflation's below 2%, I'm not going to work as hard at it. And the Federal Reserve has tried to get away from that impression. It's done a recalibrated its policies to try to really convince people that it's not going to do that. But people don't really look at what the Fed says. We have a lot of surveys that show businesses have no idea what the Federal Reserve statements are, what's going on. They just look at what's going on in their world. And so far, things aren't looking like they have to last for a long time. But I, I mean, I want, you know, say it's knife edge. I th I'm going to call it 50-50, that this is transitory, looks a lot better in six or eight months. 
and 50-50 that it doesn't look a lot better in two years. I think we're in a difficult to assess situation. I think a, a lot of economists are sort of on the fence about this because there's just so much novel we don't understand. What's at stake in that 50-50 proposition? Mostly that if inflation goes back down, we don't have to deal with it. And having high inflation, overly high inflation, let's say we get up to 4%, 5%, we were, we were just at 6%, and that stays for a while, it creates a lot of distortions in the economy, a lot of uncertainty that eventually you have to gradually bring it down. And it'd be nice not to go through that. It'd be nice not to have to wring inflation out of the economy. Because it can trigger a recession? It would trigger a recession. If we have inflation at 4% in two years and the Fed has to bring inflation down, it's going to hurt. There's almost no exceptions to that. On the other hand, we don't want to throw the economy into a recession now to proactively prevent having to do it in two years. So we're certainly rooting as an economist, I don't know, depending on what party you're in, what you're rooting for. But as an economist, we're rooting for the inflation to go away because that's much easier to deal with. But I'd say it's really knife edge at the moment. I have heard this policy conundrum described as, you know, the Fed wants to avoid increasing interest rates too aggressively in an environment where inflation would subside on its own and then, you know, sparking a recession that way versus sticking to this idea that inflation will be transitory and not increasing interest rates and therefore allowing for eventual runaway inflation. The Fed sitting in that position, looking at those two bad options and trying to drive the truck right through the middle of them, what are they looking at? How are they trying to determine what to do? It's a really good question. And I think cuts to the heart of what a lot of people don't understand about inflation. You read a lot in the paper about what are the dynamics of inflation and how would an interest rate change it. And the fact of the matter, it's it's a very political decision deciding what risk to take. How much do you let inflation overshoot for how long? How much do you deal with unemployment? And you know, certainly the Biden administration and frankly Trump was always telling the Fed to cut interest rates too. You know, they want to get Americans back to work. They want to have the economy going better. They want to have people feeling better. And I I would submit that having a recession would be worse than this. Right now, we're having this conversation. There'll be people writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times saying this is evil, it's terrible, but it's not like having a recession. Another way of putting it is inflation. It's something that's painful, but we know how to deal with it. So you're trapped. Coming out of pandemics, not easy. It's a difficult situation. I would say the Fed is clearly playing it to be softer for longer. That really looks like what their policy is. And so far, the markets aren't going crazy. People aren't thinking, oh, we're gonna have the hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s. You're you're not seeing that. And so I I think when the Fed will start to panic more is when these measures that I'm talking about of surveys, financial market indicators, when they're looking like everyone's saying, we don't believe you. We think in five years, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be much worse. When those indicators uh, start showing, they will act. But I think they'll be very patient until then. I think in the popular imagination, inflation is an incredible force in driving politics and elections. In your own observations and research, is that true? 
Yes, but not as much as the business cycle, not as much as recession. So I think everyone wants to be in a boom when they're going into an election cycle. Everyone wants to feel like jobs are plentiful, people are feeling secure. And up to a certain point, and let's call it 3 or 4% inflation, I don't think that undercuts that story. We were at 6 and we have to go to emerging markets to get to 6% inflation in recent years. That's a big number. Like if that sits around, that's really ugly. But most of the measures suggest some of that was temporary, even if it ends up at four, not one or two. The work on political business cycles, and I've worked on that, shows how the economy is doing about a year before an election is a big deal and how people feel about the economy. Inflation is there but it's definitely second to the economy. Unless people are calling the economy inflation, I mentioned to you, people blame inflation for everything. What parts of the population suffer most from inflation? And maybe what parts of the population even benefit? You can't draw any broad generalities. It depends on what's driving the inflation. We tend to think when things go well, it benefits the rich more. And when they go bad, it hurts the poor more. And to some extent, of course, that's been true trending because inequality, at least up till the last 10 or 15 years, had been trending worse. But I think the reason we should be more sensitive to unemployment is that's a much bigger deal for low-income people, whether jobs are plentiful, whether they can meet the basics. Whereas if somebody's middle class or upper middle class inflation's interfering with their plans, but it's not the same thing as losing your job. So I like to think most politicians, certainly progressive politicians, but most politicians think that having the economy go badly is worse. But at some point, if inflation drifts up too much, it gets in the way of having the economy do well. All right. Wrapping up here, what indicators are you going to be looking at most intentively over the coming months to figure out which side of the knife's edge that you described this will fall on? I think I'm going to look at the rest of the world. If they're not following suit, then this story about its supply chain and it's the pandemic, that can't be right. If we're staying high and they're staying low, it really means between monetary and fiscal policy, we need to do something. On the other hand, if they're not doing the same kind of stimulus we are and they're experiencing temp problems, maybe that indicates it's more likely. I've been a little glib in what I just said, but I I think there's a lot to be said for looking at Japan, looking at Europe, looking at the rest of the world. That said, I mentioned Japan and Europe. If you look at emerging markets, we're seeing inflation like we haven't seen in 30 years in emerging markets, just like in the United States. So I think all these pieces of information you have to bring together But obviously, the most important one is simply what's happening to wages and prices. Are we seeing the inflation spread to other sectors? Are we seeing really big price movements, wage movements in sectors where there's no supply shortages? And then it starts getting into this dynamic that does happen. We've forgotten about it. And people said it'll never happen again. As I said, it, it absolutely can. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Kenneth Rogoff is a professor of economics at Harvard University and was chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. 
My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.